This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. All right, well, we got a lot to cover this week, including Guns N' Roses Implode. Slohan, he's got a lead foot. The band Muse, they sue Celine Dion. Bob Dylan gets a prize. Frank Sinatra's got some mob buddies. Elvis Presley kicks ass. Ed Sullivan had a lot of rules to be on his show. And how much do you think you spend on music over a lifetime? Well, we're going to find out as we look back in music history for the week of October 13th. Thanks for listening to the podcast whenever you do, wherever you do. Make sure if you get a second to like the podcast, give it five stars or whatever. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you never miss an episode. It was this week back in 1965 that The Who recorded their song called My Generation in London. Roger Daltrey would later go on to say that he stuttered the lyrics in the song to try to fit them to the music. Well, that created a problem with the BBC and a few other radio stations. They didn't want to play the song because it didn't want to offend people who stutter. Well, everything apparently worked out okay because it reached number two on the charts, held off uh, of the number one position by a band called The Seekers with a song called The Carnival Is Over. This week back in 1974, TV host Ed Sullivan died. Now, you remember him as the guy who introduced the Beatles and countless other acts to America via his TV show. It ran from 1948 until 1971 on CBS every Sunday night, 8 o'clock. Now, the Beatles' appearance in 1964 is considered a milestone in American pop culture and the beginning of the British invasion in music. The broadcast drew an estimated 73 million viewers. Back in 1956, Elvis Presley made his first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Now, many people, and I've heard this story from numerous people over the years, uh, say that Sullivan censored Elvis Presley and his wild hip gyrations and his dancing by only shooting him from the waist up. Now, Sullivan may have helped create the myth when he told TV Guide that, as for his gyrations, the whole thing can be controlled with camera shots. Now, in truth, Presley's whole body was shown during his appearances. Okay, the show was on during the 1960s. Remember, this is an era when few opportunities existed for African-American performers on national television. Sullivan was a champion of black talent. He helped launch the careers of many performers by presenting them to a nationwide TV audience, and he ignored all the criticism he received. Sullivan said, quote, The most important thing during the years of the program is that we've put on everything on this TV show, except for bigotry. When the show first started in 1948, he said he had a meeting with the sponsors. There was some Southern dealers present and they asked if I intended to put on Negroes. I said, yes. They of course said I shouldn't, but I convinced them that I wasn't going to change my mind. And you know something? We've gone over very well in the South. Never had a bit of trouble. The Supremes made 14 appearances. Louis Armstrong, James Brown, Richard Pryor, and many others gained valuable exposure from the Ed Sullivan show. He even helped launch 
The Muppets. That's right. Jim Henson, the creator, appeared numerous times over the years with his various characters. That, of course, helped him launch his Muppet show years later. Now, there was always some trouble on the show. Once in a while, you had some problems. Back in 1958, Buddy Holly and the Crickets were scheduled to perform two songs. Sullivan wanted the band to substitute a different song for their hit called Oh Boy, which he felt was too raucous. Now, Buddy Holly said that that was one of the songs he was going to play. Ed got mad and told the Crickets and Buddy Holly that they've been cut down to only performing one song. And Ed also made sure that the microphone for Buddy Holly's electric guitar was turned off. Holly tried to compensate by singing loudly as he could, and he repeatedly tried to turn up the volume on his guitar. Now, for the instrumental break in his solo, he cut loose with a huge solo, overdramatic, making clear to the audience that the technical fault was not his. It was the TV shows. The band was received so well for that performance that Ed Sullivan was forced to invite them back for another appearance. Ed Sullivan also demanded that lead singer Jim Morrison of The Doors change the lyrics to their single called Light My Fire by altering the line, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher, to Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Better, before the band performed in 1967. Now, of course, Jim Morrison, he went on to sing the original lyrics, which, of course, pissed off Ed Sullivan, and The Doors never returned to the show. Now, in contrast, and this is interesting, Diana Ross and the Supremes debuted their then-release, an eventual controversial number one hit song called Love Child on Sullivan's show, but nothing about its title or its content about a woman in poverty having a child out of wedlock, which, by the way, was exceptionally taboo to mention on television at the time, seemed to bother Sullivan at all. This week in 1970, Janis Joplin's ashes were scattered at Stinson Beach in Marin County, California. Now, the singer had been found dead on the floor beside her bed at the Landmark Hotel in Hollywood on October the 4th. The official cause of death was an overdose of heroin, possibly combined with the effects of alcohol. What you want to do is to find out more is check out episode number seven of my podcast to hear all about the events leading up to Janis Joplin's death. Going back to 2002 this week, the band Muse took legal action against Celine Dion. You see, she uh, announced her forthcoming Las Vegas residency show, and it would be called Muse. Well, singer Matt Bellamy from the band said, uh, yeah, we don't want anyone to think we're Celine Dion's backing band, so she was forced to change the name. This week back in 2016, Bob Dylan was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature, becoming the very first songwriter to win the prestigious award. Now, he received the prize for, quote, having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. After it was announced he won, it took him more than two weeks to make any sort of public comment. And he finally came out and said that the honor had left him speechless. Now, see, when you win the Nobel Prize, just so you prepare for when you do, uh, you have to give a lecture to the Nobel Academy. If you don't, you have to forfeit the prize money. $900,000, by the way. Dylan finally did record a lecture, and he sent it to the Nobel Academy. 
Back in 2005, a survey concluded that the average person will spend around $50,000 on music during their lifetime. This figure includes the amount spent on your stereo equipment, concerts you go to, and CDs or whatever you use to get your music. Now, that's for the regular folks. Us music enthusiasts are likely to spend more than $100,000 in our lifetimes. I think I blew past that by the time I was like 23. <laughs> in October of 1989, the biggest band on earth opened for the greatest rock band in the world. Guns N' Roses were huge and on a massive winning streak, and they were asked to open for the Rolling Stones. Guns N' Roses were paid a million bucks for four shows opening for the Stones. Well, here's the problem. Guns N' Roses had not toured in more than eight months. And sitting around for eight months doing drugs and getting fat, particularly doing heroin quite a bit, had deteriorated some of the members' skills. Now, what started out as their rock star persona and inspired songs like Mr. Brownstone was now crumbling the band. Guns N' Roses decided to do the right thing and book a warm-up show before the Stones date. Now, at the gig, Axl Rose told guitarist Izzy Stradlin that he was going to quit the band. Now, this was not a very strange occurrence back in the day because... By his own account, Rose quit Guns N' Roses about every three days. <laughs> Ongoing drug use had created very strained tensions within the band. Now, the night of the first set opening for the Rolling Stones, all the Guns N' Roses members were backstage there, ready to go. Well, except for one member. Axl Rose was missing in action, and as time ticked away, Band management told the LAPD to go to Axel's condo and, in any which way they can, bring him back here, backstage, as soon as possible, in handcuffs if necessary. Within just a few minutes, a pair of police officers were banging on Rose's front door. Axel Rose and his entourage were then shoved into the cruiser and then on the way to the show with the sirens wailing and all the lights ablaze, the police car sliced through the traffic. When Rose hit the stage, he was understandably pissed. There was a ton of controversy going on at the same time over Rose's racially charged lyrics in the song One in a Million. This had stoked public outcry. Well, here's where it really takes a turn. The band Living Color. That's right. They had just finished their set opening for Guns N' Roses, who were then going to open for the Stones. Now, the band, whom, by the way, are all black, uh, spoke about the evils of racism while also criticizing anyone who justified hate speech. The audience gave Living Color a standing ovation. Then out comes Guns N' Roses and, yes, Axl Rose. Now, the band was still kind of tuning up when Rose grabbed the mic and addressed the audience. And I quote, Before we start playing, I want to say I'm getting fucking sick and tired of all this publicity about our song. 
He went on to say that he denied that he was a racist or a bigot, arguing that certain words, which had been labeled hate-filled or demeaning toward various minority groups, were acceptable in an artistic context. And he went on to say, if you still want to call me a racist, you can shove your head up your fucking ass. He was mad. Now, this was not the most notable tirade of the evening. It gets worse. Guns N' Roses then launch into their song called It's So Easy, but the delivery was off. In fact, reviewers noted that the band sounded more ragged than they looked, and that is saying something. Then, this is unbelievable, then Axl Rose falls off the stage and into the photographer's pit. He had been blinded by the spotlights and was clearly disoriented by his surroundings. Two security guards helped him back to his feet and up on the stage. And with embarrassment, now mixed with his rage, Axl Rose launched into another diatribe. And I quote, I hate to do this on stage, he announced, but I tried every other fucking way. And unless certain people in this band get their shit together, these will be the last Guns N' Roses shows you'll ever fucking see. Because I'm tired of too many people in this organization dancing with Mr. Goddamn Brownstone. <laughs> wow, he was pissed. Well, I knew it was directed at me because I was real strung out at the time, uh, Slash later told VH1. He says, but it was probably one of the things that made me hate Axel more than anything, doing that on stage. Bassist Duff McKagan said, I just shrank. I was so fucking embarrassed. Once Axel took his concerns public, the times of us being a gang, us against the world, were over. We played the rest of the show, but it was a half-hearted effort at best. Afterward, and really for the remainder of our career, we just went our separate ways. That night officially rang the bell for the end of an era in Guns N' Roses. Later on that evening, the Rolling Stones would deliver a masterful headlining gig, right? Of course. But at one point, Mick Jagger paused and commented on their opening act. And he says, quote, I think Axel did a good show, but I wish he'd just shut up and play. <laughs> Axel was having one hell of a bad day at the office. Sammy Hagar celebrated his 72nd birthday this week. That's right, Sammy Hagar, full of energy, is 72 years old. Now, he came into prominence in the 1970s with the band Montrose. Now, that first Montrose album is cool. You gotta check out Bad Motor Scooter, Rock Candy. I would definitely suggest digging up the first Montrose album. It is kick-ass. Now, he then went on, of course, to a very successful solo career. I mean, how many times have you seen a speed limit sign for 55 miles an hour and start singing his song, right? He ends up replacing David Lee Roth of Van Halen in 1985. And of course, they had another great career. Second Van Halen Part Two, if you will. Uh, of course, things fell apart in 1996 and he was no longer in the band. Now, he's not only one of the great voices in rock, he's one hell of a businessman as well. He's invested a lot of his rock star money into various projects. He founded the Cabo Wabo tequila brand and restaurant chain, as well as Sammy's Beach Bar Rum. Now, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars today. 
Now, Sammy Hagar says that food banks and other charities saved his family when he was a child. He was dirt poor. That's why he formed the Hagar Family Foundation, a nonprofit organization that aims to get funds and food to charities and those in need as quickly as possible, trying to reduce the amount of red tape throughout the process. He's also teamed up with James Hetfield of Metallica to stage the Acoustic for a Cure benefit concerts that help raise funds for pediatric cancer research. This week, back in 1969, police in New Jersey issued a warrant for the arrest of Frank Sinatra in relation to his connections with the mafia. Now, the FBI tracked Sinatra for over 40 years, and they kept one hell of a record. Sinatra rose to fame during the 1940s and soon attracted the attention of the FBI for claims that he paid a doctor $40,000 to declare him medically unfit for World War II service. The FBI later dismissed the allegations. Even though Sinatra always denied he was connected to the mob, he did interact with famous mafia figures and was close friends with many mobsters over the years. And Sinatra didn't care. He flaunted his friendships with people connected to organized crime and took plenty of public pictures with very well-known mobsters. His gangster friends would hang out. They shared his passions for gambling, women, money, and they often met in casinos and nightclubs. Cool. Now, he hung out with whomever the hell he wanted to, and he did not care. Now, Sinatra was never prosecuted for criminal behavior in connection to his many mob ties. The FBI file is filled with accounts of Sinatra's supposedly suspicious activities. From his support of anti-racist initiatives to his defense of people accused of being communists, Sinatra was one of the founding members of the Committee for the First Amendment, a group that supported the so-called Hollywood Ten. Uh, screenwriters and directors who were blacklisted after refusing to divulge whether they were members of the Communist Party. Sinatra's FBI dossier reveals a dismaying situation, writes historian Gerald Meyer. He says, at no time does it contain anything that even hints at an activity disallowed by the Bill of Rights. Meyer, who documented Sinatra's support of progressive causes and his public confrontation of things like racism and the McCarthy-era Red Scare sees the FBI files as evidence of a government that perceived Sinatra as a threat. This week, back in 2004, Eric Clapton was suspended from driving in France after being caught speeding at 134 miles per hour in his Porsche. He was given a $750 fine and his license was confiscated. Now, after he paid his fine, Clapton, of course, posed for pictures with the French police and then left the scene in his Porsche with his secretary driving the car. Back in 1995, Paul and Linda McCartney were the guest voices on The Simpsons. It was an episode called Lisa the Vegetarian. Now, McCartney's stipulation for appearing on the show was that Lisa's decision to become a vegetarian would be a permanent character change, to which the writers agreed. If you watch episodes now, 
she's still a vegetarian. Now, in the episode, it's pretty funny. Paul said that if you play Maybe I'm Amazed Backwards, you'll hear a recipe for lentil soup. It was in 2006 that CBGB's, the legendary New York punk club, credited with discovering Patti Smith, the Ramones, Blondie, and others, uh, closed after a final gig by Smith herself. Um, The Talking Heads were also there, and there's so many bands that performed there over the years, which helped launch United States punk music. Now, the venue first opened in 1973. Its full name, C-B-G-B-O-M-F-U-G, stands for Country, Bluegrass, Blues, and Other Music for Uplifting Gormandizers. I know what you're thinking. What the hell does gormandizers mean? Well, I had to look it up. It means to enjoy good food and good drink in very large quantities. Basically, anybody was allowed in. This week in 1956, 21-year-old Elvis Presley pulled into a Memphis gas station where he started to track a small crowd of autograph seekers. Now, after repeatedly asking Elvis to move it along so he could resume normal business, the station manager, Ed Hopper, slapped Elvis Presley on the head and then found himself on the receiving end of a punch in the face and a major beatdown from Elvis. A station employee tried to help his boss, but he was no match for Elvis Presley either. That's right. Do not get into a fight with Elvis Presley back in the day. He was going to kick your ass. After police were called, the gas station manager was charged with assault and fined 25 bucks. Chuck Berry was born this week back in 1926. Now, Chuck Berry was one of the pioneers of rock and roll music. He helped develop rhythm and blues into the major elements that made rock and roll very distinctive. The lyrics, the uh, aggressiveness, uh, all of it, right? The showmanship, obviously. His showmanship was huge. It became a major influence on subsequent rock music and a major influence on the Beatles, the Stones, and hundreds of other bands. Chuck Berry died in 2017 at age 90. This week back in 1988, Def Leppard became the first act in chart history to sell 7 million copies of two consecutive albums with Pyromania, which was their third studio album released in 1983, and Hysteria, which became the band's best-selling album, selling over 20 million copies worldwide. And, of course, it spawned six hit singles. The Music Notes and More podcast is written, produced, recorded, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Please like, leave comments, and subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. <laughs>